Warning, this episode contains foul language and potentially disturbing descriptions of procedures and body modification. Podcast for all things strange, unusual, paranormal, supernatural, creepy, sticky, gross, scary, and everything in between. Each week we have the absolute pleasure of sitting down and chatting about something weird. And this week is no exception because we are going to be talking about body modification. (laughs) (laughs) From breast implants to tongue piercings and lip injections to eyeball tattoos, we are covering it all. And this is going to be a two-part episode. This week, we're covering types of body modification and the history of it. Where did it start? Why did we start doing it? And how has it evolved to what it is today? So throw in your suspension rings and get ready to squirm. My name is Ashley, and this is my co-host, Lauren. Hi, weirdos. (laughs) And this is a gross episode. (laughs) This is a weird and gross episode, and also that was one of Ashley's best intros ever, and I'm so proud. (laughs) It's because I took that really deep breath before we started. (laughs) You were really ready for it. No, it was so great. It was so well thought out, so well said. I'm so proud. I do have to say that I had to look at a lot of things I didn't want to see when I was researching this episode. Same Z's. I can imagine, Mm -hmm. like, you're doing the piercing and tattoo side of it. I actually feel like yours is worse because even though surgery is very intense and nobody wants to see a body being cut open, I... I don't know. I feel like we've all kind of gotten this guard up against it because there's so many medical shows and there's so many reality shows that have surgery in them. Maybe we're able to just be like, yeah, whatever. But tattoos and really intense piercings, there is something about that that really just makes me wiggle around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And just a heads up, it's pretty tame. Like, I'm going to let everyone know before I say something really gross. So you can cover your ears or fast forward or whatever you need to do to get yourself through it. I'm not going to like go into detail about really gross stuff except for like once or twice because I had to I learned some things that like got me really excited. Yeah, I bet. I'm so excited to hear. And like, not everyone is like me, so <laughs> not everyone understands me. <laughs> I get it. Me. If like you don't think it's interesting, um, uh, but I did. I'm a little worried about that too because as I was texting you earlier today, I went hard on the history <laughs> of plastic surgery, and I'm sort of like, I think this is going to end up being me presenting a fourth grade essay to the class and only like two kids are listening but hopefully it won't be that well i'll be listening because i don't know anything about it and i'm okay great love to know i didn't either and i'm fascinated by it so listeners i hope you enjoy it's gonna be fun um i don't even have a home chef to talk about because our apartment was so hot and i didn't want to cook so we ordered doghouse 
<laughs> oh, that's completely fair. And Doghouse is so good. So good on you guys. Yeah. <laughs> that I mean, it's a good decision. We we also listeners, we were just talking about this before we started recording. There was like a, a possibility of rolling blackouts today because it was so hot in L.A. Like we got a warning that was like, please don't use uh, electricity if you don't need to. So I was like, mm. what if I'm halfway through cooking a meal? Right. That is very true. Power. That is a really good call. I think you guys made the right call. Did you get Home Chef delivered this week, though? Like, do you have meals? Yeah. yeah. Which ones did you get? I want to see if maybe I made one of the ones you have to. Um, I got a chicken taco, which I'm very excited Ooh. about. Um, last nice. night, we had something really good. What was it? We had a mustard cream chicken with cauliflower and zucchini last night. Yum. And it was divine. Oh, no. Last night we had New Orleans shrimp roll. What? Oh, That man. sounds incredible. <laughs> it was really good with Cajun French fries. And then we also have cheddar and crispy potato crusted chicken. Yeah, we have that too. crispy onion crusted grilled steak with cheddar potatoes. Nice. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a good week. I. <laughs> it's going to be a delicious week. <laughs> well, now that, we've, now that we've talked about food... <laughs> Let's talk about gross stuff. Actually, no, the, you know, the history isn't that gross. The history is pretty tame. Um, uh, oh, we have wine today. Yes. I'm drinking a uh, Malbec. Nice. I love Malbec. That sounds good. It's really delicious. I have a Sauvignon Blanc. Again, I feel like this happened last time we were drinking wine. I am a 50-year-old white woman <laughs> vacationing in the Hamptons. <laughs> with my wine but it's because it's so damn hot i cannot bring myself to drink a red which is my love language i have to drink a refreshing cold white to stay cool i'm ready let's rock and roll with some piercings and tattoos okay actually real quick because this episode was your idea i think your idea was just plastic surgery and then we morphed it into body modification why did you choose plastic surgery like why was that something i'll be honest It's because I've been watching a show about it, which is Mm. not a surprise because I've watched many shows about it, but there's a new one on (laughs) Netflix that (laughs) piqued my interest. But I have always had a fascination with plastic surgery and have wanted it myself, which I know is a little taboo. I know, but I have. I used to really want breast implants and I don't anymore. I'm over that. But that was what I wanted in my early 20s. Now I really want a nose job, which is also so silly, and I don't need it, but I want it. Um, so I've just always kind of had this fascination, and I've been, I've been watching a lot of reality shows on it, and it's such a crazy world that I just thought would be interesting to talk about, because it definitely falls under the category of weird, just in the sense of there are so many ways to modify your body, not yeah. just plastic surgery. Like Ashley said, piercings, tattoos, like... Uh, I mean, waist trainers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can not even surgical. You can put on a waist trainer and try to make yourself a size zero. Like people will go so far to change their bodies. And it's just so it's just a crazy topic that I thought we could discuss. Well, the good news is uh, we've been like this since the beginning of time. So right. (laughs) We don't have to feel like, exactly. I think we said this in our Facebook group re- recently, like, it's nice to know we've always been dumb. Like, it's nice to yes. know we've always been weird. It's nice to know we've always been mean, stupid, uh, wanted to change our bodies. It's nice to know that, like, that hasn't changed. <laughs> yep. And, like, it's sad to admit, but, like, physical appearance has always been important, yeah. which is a big part of body modification. Like, mm-hmm. since the beginning of time, your physical appearance is 
big part of life. So here we are. So I'm going to go first today with the history, at least. I'm going to be covering tattoos and piercings, and I'll touch a little bit on other forms of body modification uh, throughout this, but I'm going to start with tattoos. And it's actually believed that tattoos stemmed from a, a form of healing similar to acupuncture, that it was Ooh. healing at first, not necessarily um, aesthetic. Putting ink on your body. Okay. Yeah. And we don't know exactly where it started, but we can tell you that some of our oldest known mummies had tattoos. Wow. So, what? Yeah. Otzi, which That's is crazy. the oldest example. He was the mummy that we found in the ice in the Alps. Uh -huh. He was dated all the way back to 3250 BC, and he had 61 tattoos. That is crazy town. Yes. I did not know it dated that far back. Uh, well, 3250 BC, that's a little over 5,000 years ago, but there have actually even been tattooing tools discovered in France, Portugal, and Scandinavia that date back to 12,000 years ago. So, no yeah, so they're old. We've been doing this forever. Yeah. Um, we know that Germanic and Celtic tribes tattooed themselves. Uh, the mummy of Amunet from ancient Egypt and mummies at Siberia all have tattoos on them. Ancient tattooing was most widely practiced in the Austronesian people and Austronesian uh, that includes Taiwan, Southeast Asia, Micronesia, New Guinea, Polynesia, Madagascar, etc. Um, and with those those ancient peoples they would use and some of them still do as like a, a special form of tattooing for for them i think polynesian people do i don't i don't actually know which ones do but they use like a small mallet um, okay. as opposed to like a pen and uh, back then they would use a, a mallet and usually um something made from like plant thorns or fish bones or oyster shells as the the needle to put the ink in. I feel like this could be incorrect, but in the movie Moana, isn't there a scene where somebody's doing that to one of the men? <laughs> have you seen Moana? I have not seen the whole thing, so I have no idea. Okay, that's fair. I am going to be so embarrassed if I'm thinking of the wrong thing, but I think in Moana there is a scene where somebody is using a little mallet to make a tattoo on someone's back, and I remember thinking like, oh, is this a normal Polynesian tradition? I got all excited. Yeah, so, I mean, anyway. po Polynesia and uh, Australia or uh, New Zealand have, they're like the most tattooed people in the world currently because the oh, wow. Polynesian tradition of tattoos, it's pretty much like they've all got them. They've all got the yeah. tattoos. Everybody's um, so got probably them. covered in them. Yeah. China has also been tattooing since around 2000 BC, but in their case, it was considered a barbaric practice. It oh, was wow. actually common to tattoo characters on convicted criminals' faces to identify them even after they've served their time, which is like shitty. Yeah. Or they would mark slaves to display ownership, like owners mm. would have a certain symbol. Um, ancient Egypt and India used tattoos as methods of healing and methods of religious worship. Um, they could uh -huh. also be marks of status in society or marks of punishment. Tattoos in the Philippines were marks of rank and accomplishment, and people there believed they had magical properties. Um, mm. But like most things, when Christianity appeared, tattooing was considered a barbaric and sacrilegious tradition. I'm so sick of these fools. They pop up all surprise, the time. Surprise, surprise. <sighs> Ruining everything. I try to avoid them, but they're always there. I really try to steer clear. I really clear. try and stay away. <laughs> When it comes to the Western world, tattooing resurfaced in Europe in the 16th century after famous travelers like Captain James Cook 
brought home indigenous people from places that they had visited and they were often tattooed. Um, oh. And this is another one of those things where it's like, he brought them home as if these people were like, of course, I'd love a free trip to the UK. Like, no, he stole <laughs> them. <laughs> like, he took them from them. He forced them over uh, there. So, it's anyway. so true and sad. Yeah, Captain James Cook was kind of like the Christopher Columbus, but for Australia. What an Australian D-bag. Yeah. So anyways, at first, um, back then in the UK, the for, tattoos were reserved for sailors and, and lower classes. But in time, as tattoo artists got better at it, it became the hobby of aristocracy. Oh. The first documented tattoo artist in Britain was Sutherland MacDonald in the early 1880s. And tattoos were super expensive at the time. So they were a mark of high status. Okay. Which is interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. That a tattoo would mean, oh, that's the rich one mm-hmm. over there. Yeah, they are, they have a lot of money. But as more and more people learned how to do it, as tattooing became cheaper, it again was seen as the mark of a lower class. Mm-hmm. The first documented professional tattooer in the United States was Martin Hildebrandt, and he was a German immigrant who arrived in Boston, Massachusetts in 1846. And between 1861 and 1865, he tattooed soldiers on both sides of the Civil War. Oh, wow. What a little rebel. I know. <laughs> he was, he was like, getting everybody. I'm fucking German. I don't care about your Civil yeah, War. Like, I don't really you're going to pay shit. me this to give you a problem. tattoo? Fine. Like, I'm going to take your money. 100%. And I don't care what you guys are fighting about. In 1891, New York tattooer Samuel O'Reilly patented the very first electric tattoo machine which was actually a modification of thomas edison's electric pen what yes that's cool thank thomas edison for uh quicker tattoo and (laughs) a little bit less painful of an experience i imagine yeah for real well thanks edison thank you who knew (laughs) you did one thing that we like (laughs) true in the late 19th century, we got to see the first appearance of tattoos on modern women, and this was during the circus days, and these ladies <sighs> ruled. Love that. They, uh, they were known as the tattooed ladies, and they had, like, sleeves and, like, chest plates of tattoos. They were pretty much covered. Oh, dang, they were covered. Except for yes. their faces, yeah. Um, and they would wear what was, at the time, pretty scandalous clothing, and they earned a salary considerably larger than their male counterparts, like the tattooed men yes, of the circus. Queens. <laughs> Not only that, tattooed ladies made anywhere from $100 to $200 a week, which was insane considering the fact that teachers were making $7 a week at the time. Oh, my goodness. They were loaded. They, they were, were seriously so loaded. Money. Clerical workers were some of the highest paid at this time at $22 a week. And these women were making 100 to $200 a week. Just for being tattooed women. Yeah. And that, that was usually like Friday and Saturday. You know what I mean? Dang. Like the circus didn't run on Wednesdays. Right. That's all they had to do. Two days a so, work. So they were making That's pretty cool bank. Good for them. They were um they were actually they were getting men's money by showing off their body in ways that like weren't seen anywhere else in the world. Like we didn't have strip Dang. clubs. 
Uh, you know what I mean? Even like... Um, so this was a new thing to be exposing yourself that yeah, way. Yeah, because they were in like sexy clothes kind of. They had cleavage yeah. showing and they would have their legs showing and it was like, oh my God, we can't see this anywhere else. We don't have porn. Right. We don't have <laughs> strip Right. Clubs. Take all my money. <laughs> Please. And then women... They were making money off of women because they would not just stand there and be in tattoos. They would make up stories about how they got their tattoos when they were kidnapped by Native Americans that tattooed them as a form of torture. So it was kind of like a Ooh. it was like a scary stories, but also, I think, kind of like a fetish type thing sure you know yeah. what i mean like a people um, were coming looking for that specifically yeah, like, like it was give like me a little sexy. drama yeah, yeah. <laughs> i like so, it so they were cool and then tattooing kind of wasn't a big thing uh for a bit uh -huh. until the 1960s during the hippie movement when it slowly entered mainstream and that is kind of Again, like between the late 1800s and the 1960s, it was pretty much deviant behavior. Like you didn't get a tattoo right. unless you were like a sailor. Like you didn't yeah. have tattoos. <laughs> sure. Um, and if you did, you were in prison or people assumed you were in prison. But then in the 60s, you know, it turned into a form of self-expression and it was becoming more and more acceptable. And we had artists emerging like Ed Hardy, who's basically a joke now, but he was like a tattoo renaissance man oh, yeah. in the late At 50s. At the time, he was this amazing artist yeah. that nobody I mean, had he, ever seen before. He created that style right. of tattooing, that really colorful style. And then again, in the 70s, we had Jack Rudy, who reinvented the black and gray style of tattooing oh. and the portraits and stuff like that. Yeah. Cool. And actually, it was Janis Joplin. She had a Love small, her. she was so cool. She had a small wristlet so cool. tattoo and a small heart tattoo on her left breast. And <sighs> this was considered like a seminal moment in the popular acceptance of tattoos as art. Like this was kind of the moment where it was like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a second. Is this really cool? Everyone can have one of these. Yeah. A uh, small side story that I found while researching this. This is a very sad story, but it's very on brand for our show. So I figured I would throw it in. I would share. Oh, goodness. Okay. The very first Playboy Playmate with a visible tattoo was named Star Stowe, and it was in 1977. Okay. And her tattoo was a solid star, and it was located on her tchotchke. It was on her ah. vagina. It was like... Okay, on her right under place. her, yeah, it was like right under her pubic hair, like you could see okay. it under her pubes. So, Star worked in a strip club when she was discovered by a Playboy scout, and from hanging around Playboy, she began dating Gene Simmons, who's the basis for the band Kiss. If anyone didn't know, mm -hmm. and uh, he's the one with the tongue, and. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So she started dating Gene Simmons, and she posed for a pretty famous photo with Gene for, I think, one of their CDs. Um, if you look up, I wouldn't recommend Googling Star Stowe if you're at work, because you're going to get some photos that aren't... Uh, Very inappropriate. They're rated R. <laughs> Not safe for work. Not yet. NSFW. So anyway, that relationship fizzled out. She never really made it far in the entertainment industry. Uh, eventually she got married and had a kid, but then got divorced and moved to Fort Lauderdale in 1986. And it was there that she started stripping again. And she was making really good money at first because she was working off of her Playboy Playmate fame. Right. But eventually that wore off. But what didn't wear off was her partying habit and her drug problems. Eesh. Which ended up driving her to sex work. 
for the first time. And okay. on March 16th, 1997, she was found strangled and dumped behind a pharmacy. <gasps> no. Yeah. By one of her clients, probably. Well, another area oh. sex worker named Sandra K. Walters had been strangled in the same way weeks earlier. Whoa. So the no. police were starting to believe that both women had been victims of the same man. Sure. But they couldn't find him. But then later, in the same year, 1997, another woman named Tammy Strunk was found dead in a shopping center trash bin in Plantation, Florida. That same year, another woman named Teresa Kettner was found dead in Coral Springs. And it was at that point the police finally admitted that they probably had a serial killer on their hands. Yeah, you think? (laughs) (laughs) Then two more strangled women turned up in 1999 but after that the crime stopped and there haven't been any new killings in florida with the same mo and the case is still unsolved to this day they just have no clue no idea that pisses me right off so that was kind of off topic but i read that and i was like holy oh no you have to share that I was going to ask if all the women were tattooed and if that was the connection, but mm. that you d- that didn't even need no. to be a connection because that story was just fascinating anyway. But dang, that is rough. So piercings are, are kind of the same. The oldest mummified remains ever discovered was sporting earrings, which means it was definitely practiced over 5,000 years ago. Nose piercings are documented as far back as 1500 B.C., Ear and nose Why piercings. Why is that so cool? I just I know. love that people are piercing their nose. <laughs> <laughs> Ear and nose piercings have been documented all over the world, but lip and tongue piercings were historically found in Africa and uh, American tribal cultures. Right. Um, nipple and genital piercings have also been practiced by various cultures dating back to at least ancient Rome. Um, genital piercings in particular were described in ancient India as far back as 320 AD to, uh, 320 to 550 AD. Totally not even meaning to, I just grabbed my crotch when you said genital piercings (laughs) because I felt a stinging pain, a phantom pain that didn't exist because the thought of a genital piercing makes me so upset. And I hate saying that because some of our listeners might have one and listen, I support you if you have one, <laughs> but I want to cry thinking but of getting I one. want to crawl out of my own skin. Yes, but it's because I'm a wimp. So again, if you have one, it's probably because you're a badass and I'm not. Anyway, continue. Navel piercings are a mystery. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's no one hilarious. knows. Uh, historically, no one knows. Aesthetically, no one knows. <laughs> Just kidding. I've had a belly ring since... 1999? I was going to say, don't you have one? Yeah. You've never yeah. taken it out. Oh, I've taken it out. But it, it stays open? It stays open. It will not close. Dang. Here's what happened. I got it pierced. I was in eighth grade. I loved it. And then... <laughs> um, of course you did. You were in eighth grade. <laughs> yeah. And then it was like, eventually... I don't remember the timeline, but eventually it, it. I had it out. It closed up. I decided, no, I don't want this to close. I got it re-pierced, which holy hell hurts so bad piercing through that scar tissue piercing yeah and i think that that's why it will not close now because then i had it out um when i moved to la i don't think i had it anymore maybe i did for like a year and then i had it out for years and then all of a sudden one day i was like i wonder because i could still see it but i was like you know it could have closed up in the middle nope 
Totally. It's still there. <gasps> it's wide open. Dang. So. Now you have it forever. I feel like the second piercing made that happen. Yeah, I think it's just a part of me now. I mean, that's we, me with my nose. I had my, I mean, it didn't stay open, but I had my nose pierced for five years. Yeah, from, oh no, six years, from age 18 to 24. And the only reason it came out is because anyone who has their nose pierced, Ashley, this includes you, will feel my pain when I say this. A sweater ripped it out of my nose when oh, I was taking God. it off. And I was bawling, like not even like, oh, I'm crying because I'm sad. Just like the instant something happens to your nose, tears come out. And yeah. so it was like it ripped out of my nose and tears just came streaming down my face. And I just sort of had this moment of like, oh, well, like I'll deal with this later. And I just didn't put anything in for like another year. And then I tried after a year. And it's like you said, sometimes you can see the hole, but that doesn't mean it goes all the way through. And so the hole is still there. Like even today, this is way later. I'm 31 now. And it's there's still a hole on my nostril. But if you try to put anything through it, like doesn't even make it halfway. So I've been considering getting it re-pierced because I did love having my nose piercing and was sad when it came to an end. But as you said, Anyone who has gotten a re-piercing says that going through the scar tissue is like 10 times worse. And I'm terrified. So I don't know what I wonder do. if it would be the same, though, because your nose is a completely different thing than your like the fatty skin on your belly. It is. But the nose also has really thick skin. You're you're yeah. correct in that it's nowhere near your belly button. But like I'm feeling my nostril right now and there is some skin. Like there's a lot there. <laughs> and it, like I said, it. It wasn't even making it halfway. So, like, they're basically going to have to redo it from the beginning, which makes me cringe. But I don't know. I've been considering it because I do really miss having it pierced. I always thought it was cute and fun. So, we'll see. Yes, I, I have gotten many ear, many rings ripped out. I've had belly rings caught on things that got Ugh. tugged. I've had my nose get it's caught horrible. on things that get tugged. And... Dad, if you're listening, cover your ears. It has happened with my nipple rings. And oh, I was going to ask how your nipple rings were. My nose <laughs> hurt <laughs> when it got caught on shit. Uh, Ashley, I, was, I can't I even wrong. imagine. Oh my gosh, nipples. Like, yeah, I think of the pain of that day of the sweat, the sweater <laughs> ripping out my yeah. nose ring, but I just imagine that happening to my nipple and my whole body just went into the fetal position. Yeah, you want to throw up. Like, it feels like you're going to throw up. Ugh. So anyway, <laughs> so the history, piercings in general, they've, they've been harder to document throughout history because, so like earrings have been found in a lot of graves, but the deterioration of the flesh that it once pierced makes it difficult to see like how the jewelry was used. So, True, yeah. Also, apparently the history of piercings has kind of been sabotaged by a man named Doug Malloy, who was... Oh. <laughs> A Hollywood entrepreneur, whatever the fuck that is, in the 60s and 70s, and he was a piercing enthusiast. And he published a couple books on piercings, and he wrote a pamphlet called hate this guy. Body and Genital Piercings in Brief that included a ton of misinformation and urban legends that he, like, just listed as fact. Nope. Like, for example, Prince Albert himself invented the dick piercing that shares his name in order to diminish the appearance of his large penis in tight trousers, which, like, I don't know how that would work. <laughs> right? What is he talking about? That's not, that doesn't do anything for the size of that the penis. Makes or, no sense. And he also said that Roman officers attached their capes to nipple piercings. And again, as a person with pierced nipples, 
There's no fucking way. Oh, no, you can't do that. Um, earrings have existed for like forever. Many ancient piercings were gauged piercings, which for anyone who doesn't know, that means they were for uh, they were those thick piercings. Earrings were even mentioned in the Bible. Hey, in Genesis, Jacob buries uh, the earrings worn by members of his household. In Exodus, Aaron makes the golden calf from melted earrings, which a lot of people point to in saying uh, that piercings are a sin, which the Bible actually does not say at all. And this is another one of those Bible things that I have to talk about. It's another one of those things that we changed in the last hundred years or so because we just didn't like something. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, the verse that a lot of people point to is Leviticus uh, 19, verse 28. And a cutting for the dead you will not make in your flesh, and writing marks you will not make on you. I am the Lord. Well, modern day Bibles threw the word tattoo in there. Um, Now it says, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. And at the time that this was written, modern day tattoo practices didn't exist. Like no one in that time was tattooing the name or likeness of their loved ones. No one was tattooing names on their body. That wasn't a thing. Yeah. So experts and religious scholars believe that Leviticus 19.28 was actually written in response to the very extreme body modifications that were used for sacrifices. So, like, the Canaanites would mark their bodies by branding, slashing, cutting, and mutilating their skin to honor their gods or mourn for their deaths. So, if you take that into consideration, it would make sense that God was actually saying, like, hey, don't do that because it's a worship of other gods and scarification. you should be worshiping me, so stop that. Yeah, that adds up. But nowhere in the Bible does it say you shouldn't inject ink under your skin. The only thing the Bible says is to glorify your body, not to poison your body, not to dishonor your body. And for most people today, tattooing their body is glorifying their body. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, and piercing is decorating your body. So really, according to the Bible, drinking a beer is more of a sin than getting a tattoo. So, <laughs> so everybody <laughs> uptight about tattoos, you better relax. <laughs> Put that in your biblical <laughs> pipe and smoke it. Smoke it. <laughs> piercings today are pretty widely accepted, especially ear piercings. Like no one even notices. Nose piercings are pretty much okay everywhere too. Um, mm-hmm. Other face piercings aren't totally accepted by all. Yeah, they're still working on it, I feel like. Yeah. And then like nipple and genital piercings are still pretty taboo, but they've got some cool history. Genital piercings are actually in the Kama Sutra. Ooh, that makes sense. In the Kama Sutra, they literally describe genital piercing to permit sexual enhancement by inserting pins and other objects into the foreskin of the penis. Hot <sighs> damn. So, boy, oh boy. Yikes. <laughs> I can't. Oh my goodness. Um, well, there you go. And nipple piercings may have existed in Rome. There's a possibility it was a sign of masculinity there. They've also been a rite of passage for both British and American sailors who traveled beyond a significant latitude and longitude. So if they had a certain amount of miles, boat miles, (laughs) I don't know, clicks, I don't know what, (laughs) nautical miles under their belt, that you you would get your nipple pierced and that would show like, oh, he's he's been he's been far and wide. He's been some places, guys. Yeah. Piercings outside of the ears pretty much died off until the gay subculture started to bring it back after World War II. Um, you started seeing men with hoops with piercings in their ears. Uh-huh. And from there, it started growing in the 60s and especially in the 70s in the punk movement. And then in the 90s is where we really started seeing piercings reach outside of punk rock and into pop 
because Brittany had a belly ring, Extina had a nose ring, and Janet brought the nipple ring back for women in a big way during her, you know, wardrobe situation at the Super Bowl. Yep, that malfunction. So, um, that's <laughs> yeah. pretty much all we know about piercings, because like I said, like, jewelry is buried with people, but the right. flesh is gone. So it's sure, hard to tell, hard like, to tell. how it was worn unless there's some sort of art. You know, in ancient Egypt, we actually have the art to show where piercings were on the body. Right. It's very cool. I love that people have been piercing forever. It's yeah. so fun. Piercings are great. I mean, I want some more. Like I have a few on my ears. And like I said, I had my nose at one point and I would get that re-pierced. But I feel like I want to just add more to my ears. I'm too much of a wimp to do anywhere else. But I'm like, why not just have diamonds all up my ear? Let's try it. And by diamonds, I mean something cheap from Amazon. I have five in each ear. I have... In each ear? Mm -hmm. Dang. I have nose. I have my belly button. I have my nipples. And when I was 19, I got my lip pierced. Um, That didn't last long. I was really <laughs> I was afraid. Say, I honestly... I was afraid I was going to chip a tooth. Like, uh, you really, like... Because I had a hoop. I didn't have, like, a stud. I had a big right. hoop. So you have to be so careful. Yeah, and I just kept hitting my teeth on it and it was... Yeah, I get it. It wasn't my thing. But it looked pretty cool, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it looked badass. I always think lip piercings look so cool. It's just, like I said, I'm not brave enough for it. But yeah. It fucking Nose hurt. was as far as I would I go. Yeah, I would imagine. Out. When I was 12 years old, I saw something in the sky I couldn't explain. And I've been searching for answers ever since. And I'm inviting you on that search with me every week on the Somewhere in the Skies podcast. With special guest interviews, case history, and audio docs, we ask the tough questions when it comes to UFOs, the paranormal, and the unexplained. New episodes drop every Monday through the E1 Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts and at somewhereintheskies.com. Okay. Plastic surgery. Yes. So I was really surprised reading the history of plastic surgery because in my head, I thought because of how advanced we are today and just thinking of surgery in general mm -hmm. and digging into a person, I was like, oh, this has to be semi-recent, what we're looking at. But no, 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 everybody. Oh there has been surgery dating back to more than 4,000 years ago. What? We're getting into the piercing and tattoo timelines, which was crazy to me. Physicians in ancient India used skin grafts for reconstructive surgery as early as 800 BC. Oh, my God. Eastern medicine took to plastic surgery first and more eagerly than the rest of the world, and there are many recorded incidents of skin grafts and even other forms of reconstructive surgery throughout very, very early history, and it was pretty much always in the eastern region. It took a while for it to be adopted anywhere else, but they were straight up cutting off skin from different parts of the body and putting it on people's faces because it was usually due to some sort of facial deformity, which again points back to we have always wanted to fix physical things about yeah. ourselves. People have always wanted to fix things because dating back to 800 BC, people were saying, hey, I have this weird scar, this weird thing on my face. Can we do something about it? And they were doing skin grafts. So that was wild to me. Um, progress was incredibly slow for plastic surgery, as to be expected, because 
I mean, that's the truth with most medical procedures anyway, but took thousands of years for it to be refined and adapted to other countries. But there was another very important historical time that saw a lot of progress as well in reconstructive surgery, and that was during the Greco-Roman period. So moving forward a bit, during this time, the there was a Roman medical writer named Aulus Cornelius Celsus, and he wrote a piece called De Medicina, which laid mm. out surgical methods for reconstructing ears, lips, and noses. He had perfect directions for the way to do all of it. And this was a very detailed little medical journal that he put forward. And this was passed down for years and years to other physicians. People were using this that this guy made so freaking long ago. And following this, during the early Byzantine period, a man named Oribasius, I'm sure I'm saying that incorrectly, he was a Greek medical writer and a personal physician to the Roman emperor at the time named Julian the Apostate. He compiled a complete medical encyclopedia that was 70 volumes long. Oh my god. <laughs> containing numerous passages dictating how to do reconstructive surgery techniques. So these people had like a million techniques. They were making these really long medical journals back in this era, which I thought nothing was happening during this time. But reconstruction was very well and alive in the Roman era. And it was starting to grow and become more well known because of these medical journals that were being put forward. So it continued into the Middle Ages. And in the early Middle Ages, it was still pretty popular, though no big progress or any really big significant developments came forward it came to a bit of a halt due to the fall of rome i was you know, gonna say we thing. lost a lot of progress <laughs> we lost a whole lot of Around things that in time. that time so. <laughs> exactly so we had a little pause but also not just the fall of rome but surprise surprise ashley the spread of christianity mm. also brought things to a halt that's right don't folks. get me started <laughs> The church stepped in, y'all, to ruin something wonderful for everyone <laughs> once again. Um, Pope Innocent III declared that surgery in any form was expressly prohibited by church law during this time. So the search for any actual scientific knowledge had been replaced by a complete focus on spirituality during this time. It was basically Just like pray, connect with yourself, pray, yeah, pray, connect with God. Pray the pain away. <laughs> pray the pain away. Pray it all away, people. Don't look into science. Um, but also, fair enough, the safety of surgical patients was also completely compromised because this is the Middle Ages and the standards for hygiene and cleanliness, uh, they didn't exist. Yeah, at that Nobody... point, it's like, you know what? Just live with your face. 100%. It is like, very dirty was... right now and we don't have It's time super to clean. dirty. <laughs> Nobody's bathing. Nobody's taking care of themselves. We don't have a way to do any of these procedures in a good way. So there was no hygiene standard at that time. And it's sort of like, okay, yes, this would have been dangerous. I get it. Figure that part out. Stop the infection. Yada, yada, yada. But there were still some minor advances made during this time. We were not completely repressed by the church, guys. And a big win was in the 10th century, there was the development of procedure to repair a cleft lip, mm. which is huge because even today, cleft lip and cleft palate surgeries are super popular and they're amazing because there are children all over the world just born with this. It's a birth defect where their lip is basically split open. And when it's the cleft palate, I think there's even a split pretty well into their mouth. So this surgery is incredibly important and there's lots of cool organizations that do them for free. 
for children, which is cool, but to think that it was back in the 10th century that this repair came to be, I think is huge and amazing that this is where it all began. I know. And it's so fascinating because I, you know, now looking at it today in 2020, I mean, some of the surgeries, you can't even tell. There's like barely no, there's a like scar. there's like no scar. Right. It's nuts. They do it so well. And I'm sure back then uh, there was probably a scar. Probably didn't but... look that great, but. <laughs> probably didn't look great, but the fact that they found a life. way to piece the skin together, yeah, and make life better for these people was amazing. So I thought that was really cool that they had advanced that far at the time. And then we're moving into the Renaissance, and there were finally some really good significant advances in science and technology, which resulted in the development of safer surgical techniques, what we'd been waiting for. It got cleaner. It got safer. We could jump back into business and try to move forward. We washed our hands. So, we wore gloves. <laughs> exactly. We're protecting ourselves even in the smallest way to do these surgeries. So in the 15th century, an Islamic text uh, came forward that covered 191 surgical practices in it, including a protocol for the treatment of gynecomastia, which is believed to be the first foundation for the modern method of breast reduction that oh. we know well today. And gynecomastia, for anyone who doesn't know, is the swelling of breast tissue in males due to a hormone imbalance. So this has been happening, obviously, since the beginning of time where men have the appearance of having breasts because of the hormones. So even back then in the Renaissance era, they were working on ways to reduce this. And in the 15th century, they found a way, made uh, medical journals on it. And it was sort of like the basic foundation of what we use today. And obviously, things have advanced greatly in technology is crazy now. But again, I was just blown away that it was back in the 15th century, we were doing breast reductions. It's like, hello? Who? Why? I know, because then I think of the 15th century, and I was like, did we have the wheel? <laughs> I know. What year was that? Exactly. Like, what <laughs> I was have around? no sense of time. <laughs> what were we, were people still just naked on the street? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> did we have shoes? Go on. I know. Plastic surgery after this time, there was so much to celebrate, a lot of cool things coming forward at a very early time. But then plastic surgery, reconstructive surgery saw a big decline again for the next few centuries, actually, which was normal. Things were a roller coaster then because who is actually trying to advance science? Who thinks it's wrong because of the church? Like it was just a roller coaster of a time. For and anybody also, really trying. yeah, we were at a time where it was like, OK, do you want to cure this disease that's killing millions of people or do we want to work on plastic? So, you know what I mean? It was like priorities. Exactly. Like how important is this? One hundred percent. Yeah. If you're going to advance in the medical field, you're going to be saving lives and not just pots. trying to correct somebody's face. Exactly. So it went on a big decline for a few centuries. It would rise in popularity for a bit in the 18th century, then declined again all over the place. And they just weren't advancing enough or finding new ways to do anything. And we didn't see any more major discoveries in plastic surgery until the 20th century, actually. So quite a bit of time went by. But this is when the casualties of war in World War I mm. made reconstructive plastic surgery a necessity for many soldiers. This is when plastic surgery really came forward because it was discovered that it was a way to make people be able to live. It became a way of not just, oh, you want to fix this aesthetic thing on your face because you don't enjoy it. It was like, no, this man has a horrific injury and we have to fix this in order for him to live and 
have a piece of his face. Like we have to, yeah. we have to fix this. So World War One brought pa- plastic surgery to a new level. It was a huge game changer because military physicians were required to treat many extensive facial and head injuries caused by new modern weaponry that basically nobody had seen or dealt with before. This was brand new. They are on the spot taking these soldiers in, trying to come up with ways to fix it and basically advancing science in a huge way on the spot during the war. So it's pretty crazy. But these horrific injuries basically made it a necessity for new procedures, as I said, and some of Europe's most skilled surgeons dedicated their entire practice to restore their country's soldiers to wholeness during and after the war. So this was going on for a few years. And European countries were the first ones before the U.S. that made a ton of progress in the world of reconstructive surgery. It was huge. And it was also during this time that surgeons began to fully realize the potential influence that someone's appearance had on their level of success and their happiness in life, which has really just paved the way for us being humans in this world. (laughs) It's how we all are. It was the first time that somebody outwardly said like, hey, I think our physical appearance actually really counts for something and we need to have some sort of surgical specialty that works on this. So because of this new understanding coming forward, aesthetic surgery began to take its place as a more respected aspect of plastic and reconstructive surgery, as they realized if it could change someone's life and allow them more opportunity with just an alteration of their appearance, we should look into this a bit more seriously. Also, I bet we could make some good money. (laughs) that too because really it all comes down to that at the end of the day like people are gonna pay us the big bucks see so this progress also brought with it a better understanding of anesthesia and infection prevention thank the good lord that's cool So surgeons were finally i know which i thought was awesome because before then you kind of just had to be like sorry Sorry, this this is gonna hurt so keep your eyes shut (laughs) you don't want to see this bite onto this wood plank and bite as hard as you can um yeah they started to understand anesthesia and infection prevention allowing surgeons to perform a wider wider variety i cannot speak Take a it's drink the wine Maybe i know i really should <laughs> <laughs> so they were able to perform a wider variety of increasingly complex procedures where someone would have to be put under in order to do them because they are getting intensive they're getting in there Um, And they were able to make very extensive repairs on these people, which was so cool that this was all coming forward after World War I. Again, I'm blown away by the things people were able to do. Um, Some of these procedures in the early 1900s included the first recorded instance of surgery that was truly just cosmetic. It was the first rhinoplasty, followed shortly after by breast augmentation. For those, if you don't know, rhinoplasty is a nose job. And breast augmentation Boobies. is breast implants, boob job. So thanks, World War One, you gave us our first cosmetic procedures. And even though Europe was slightly ahead of us, the U.S. was still doing things. They weren't completely behind. We are actually responsible for the first cleft palate operation. I was talking about just the cleft lip before, but the full cleft palate operation happened in the U.S. in 1827. It was performed by a man named Dr. John Peter Metower, and he used surgical instruments of his own design, which I was like, hey, sir, love you. Just like, here, these are my tools. I'm going to do it. And it was successful, and it's it like, was like, here, doctor, here's a scalpel. He's like, I brought my own. I brought my own from home, and he opens a lunchbox, and it's great. 
<laughs> and then in 1907, Dr. Charles Miller penned the first text specifically written on cosmetic surgery, first of its kind, and it was entitled The Correction of Featural Imperfections. So this was way ahead of its time, because again, cosmetic procedures were just starting to come forward. It was just starting to be a thing, still a little taboo, it was still a little under the radar, but then this guy makes a little medical journal and says, hey, do you think you have some imperfections? We can correct those in these different ways. So this text was considered very ahead of its time. Some people really respected it and looked to it as the future and were excited about it. But unfortunately, most surgeons and pretty much anyone in the medical field was criticizing it pretty harshly and calling it, quote unquote, quackery. And many general surgeons were looking at people in plastics and reconstructive surgery saying, you guys are not real surgeons, like you're working in black magic and pretending that it's medicine was sort of the way they were looking at them. They were calling plastic surgeons quacks and people who didn't understand medicine. And it was a very sad world to be in at the time because they were really innovative and moving things forward in a cool way. But it just... It was almost too soon. Like they were doing it before its time and nobody was ready for it. So nobody knew how to react, receive yeah. it. And they were, yeah, they were made fun of. So that was sad. But one great institution that played an important role in the advancement and betterment of plastic surgery was Johns Hopkins, which we've all heard of it. It's a university and a hospital all really into medical research, like really intense medical research. And you know, if you're going to college there, that even in your undergrad, you are going to be researching with the best of the best and getting into really intense medical research and helping things move forward. Like you're seeing all of the new front of the line stuff. So Johns Hopkins forever has been this amazing university. And it was there that Dr. William Stewart Halstead created the first general surgery training program in the U.S., in 1904, he published uh, an article called The Training of a Surgeon, and it laid the foundation for what to, was to become basically the prototype that all modern surgical training programs used. So that was huge. And he was working in plastics when he put this out. So it was like, hey, remember when you all made fun of plastics? Look at this incredibly intelligent man and how his medical journal is being used for years and years. So that was a huge break breakthrough. And the U.S. suddenly was going above and beyond every other country in the world of surgery, not just plastics, but surgery in general. We were surpassing everybody after being behind for years. And the U.S. was the first to come up with specialties for surgeries, which is sort of how plastics came to fit in, because there was always just general surgery. Like if somebody needs an organ taking out, we have to fix something. We have to sew somebody up. That's our general surgery. But when it comes to transplants and you know, helping a burn victim or helping someone who was in the war. We have to fit that in. So the U.S. and again, Johns Hopkins specifically was so forward in this and making sure that surgeons focused on a specialty and they weren't going through school, being forced to learn every little procedure that has ever existed. It's like, no, no, no. Pick your specialty. Focus on that. Become a master of that. So I thought that was really cool because that is the world we know today. And I can't imagine a surgeon's life going through school trying to learn every surgery that has ever existed and not just having their specific specialty. I know. That's what's crazy about being a veterinarian yes. is that you don't get paid near as much as doctors and yet you mm -hmm. have to be able to perform surgeries and, and general medicine on anything from like a snake to a horse. 
every animal and every type of surgery. Yeah. It's crazy. And there are, you know, specialists, obviously, but like a cat's body is different than a dog's. And a 100%. dog's body is different than a rabbit. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect. Yeah, you might for that. have to treat all three within a day. Yeah. It's nuts. <laughs> it is wild. That's such a good point. I mean, they should be getting paid. They should so be getting much paid more. a lot of money. Goodness. <laughs> oh, they're saving our pets. But anyway. Yeah, specialties, guys. They're important, even for animals. <laughs> but thank goodness for specialties within surgery on humans, because we're all benefiting from it today, and it really helped plastic surgery move forward. Um The 40s and 50s, more advancements came in 1946. A scientific journal finally came forward that was specifically just for plastic surgeons. It came forward in July 1946. The very first issue was released. And since then, the same journal has continued to serve as a forum for the passing Mm. on of knowledge and important discoveries among plastic surgeons and all their medical colleagues. So started in 1946, still going today. Everybody passing on what they've learned, their notes, their tips. It's still going. So that was very cool. So with board certification finally in place and the birth of Plastic Surgery's own medical journal, they finally were taken seriously and plastic surgery was integrated into the medical world by 1950 and the public really began to hear about it and learn about it. Um, The really cool things reconstructive surgery could do, the cool cosmetic things that if you're just saying plastic surgery could do, like it was this whole new world and people are getting excited about it. So... Also, at this time, some new techniques came forward to deal with facial fractures and deformities. They learned how to do internal wiring, where you actually inserted wiring into a person's face to sort of deal with a facial fracture and reconnect the dots of the face, some of the muscle and the nerves, and get it working again. That came about in the 50s. And then the use of rotation flaps to correct massive skin injuries and deformities also came forward at this time, which... Basically, it's similar to a graft. You're using some of the patient's own skin to heal something back on their face. So I think it was just a little more advanced than a graft, but sort of the same idea. And then modern plastic surgery, as we know it today, really took shape in the 60s and 70s. Silicone was a newly created substance that we've all heard of now. It was growing in popularity as a staple of plastic surgery. And initially, it was used to just treat skin imperfections. It was used in the face a lot. But then in 1962, Dr. Thomas Cronin created and unveiled a new breast implant device made from silicone. And over the next decade or so, silicone implants were developed for use in just about every part of the face and body. Silicone could be used all over, but most commonly, and as we know it today, used for breast implants. Um, And plastic surgeons were also becoming more and more respected and admired in the medical community, finally, and even sort of moved to the top of the ranks. Dr. Hal B. Jennings worked in plastic surgery and was appointed Surgeon General in 1969, which was a huge deal to be the Surgeon General and work in plastics. Like, this was not the norm, and it was huge. And then Dr. Joseph Murray is the only plastic surgeon to have won the Nobel Prize for Medicine, still to this day. And he was known for his work in transplants and creating an anti-rejection medicine that changed the world of surgery and implants forever. So this guy's really cool. Then the 80s saw plastic surgery go mainstream in America and growth continued well into the 1990s, even though healthcare reform was a huge hit to the world of cosmetic surgery because insurance companies did not want to reimburse anymore for reconstructive work. 
And also surprisingly, even with the growing controversy over silicone breast implants and the risks involved in them, this did not deter anybody from seeking cosmetic procedures, no matter if there was insurance coverage or if there was risk of a silicone plant being rejected from the body, people just kept going forward and paying all of the monies for plastic surgery, which is still true today. Everybody's just sort of like, take everything I have. I want to get fixed. So (laughs) there's no surprise there. But that's when it sort of launched. Um, So everyone was getting really excited about plastic surgery. And then one big and cool move in the 90s was also that in 1998, President Bill Clinton signed a bill that included a provision requiring insurance companies to cover the cost of post-mastectomy breast reconstruction surgery. Which is amazing because getting a mastectomy, whether to remove cancer or to be preventative, because I know a lot of people who have the BRCA gene and they preventatively remove their breasts because the BRCA gene gives mm-hmm. them a super high chance and Jolene of getting Jolie cancer. And Jolene did that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's like if you need to prevent it or if there's cancer already there, mastectomy is huge, important, and life-saving. But so many women, what they don't talk about is the after. So many women feel empty and depressed without their breasts and they can't live this life of feeling like a woman. They want to feel like a woman, but they just have this flat chest and this scarring that exists and they don't They just don't feel like a woman anymore, and it leads to very severe depression and, in a lot of cases, suicide. So this was a huge deal that Bill Clinton signed this bill so that women felt they could afford and get these implants finally, because they weren't doing it just to, you know, get their bigger size. They wanted their breasts back to feel like the woman that they were. So I loved this. Bill Clinton might have made a lot of mistakes, but I thought that was amazing. So that was very cool. And then here we are in the 2000s. Plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, reconstructive, there has been an explosion. We all know it. We see it every day. Reconstructive feats especially are something that only seemed like a dream even just in the 80s, the late 80s and early 90s. Like we can do the most insane things today. There are facial transplants that exist. And every time I'm reminded of that, I my jaw falls to the floor. Listen, like you can I've seen face off. Put a new face on. <laughs> That is true. I forgot about the movie Face Off. Guys, go watch Face Off. <laughs> this is what we're talking about. This is exactly what oh we're my talking God, I about. I love that movie. It's bad. You just reminded me how good that movie is, well. even though it's horrible, <laughs> but I love it. We can do facial transplants. It's a crazy world that we live in. And with this world that we live in full of internet and television, we can now basically view any kind of surgery we want from the comfort of our couch. And there are countless shows that talk about plastic surgery, and they don't shy away from showing you everything. Especially, I don't know if anyone out there has watched the show Botched on E! I refuse. I refuse. (laughs) I've only seen a few episodes because it's way too graphic for me. But basically, if you haven't heard of it, it's two surgeons who correct what other terrible surgeons have done to people. It's usually breast augmentations that went horribly wrong and are super infected and the boobs are two different sizes and everybody looks crazy and they have to go in and correct it but my goodness they show so much so this is our world today we're we're just seeing all of it plastic surgery is everywhere and currently the most important trend in plastic surgery is a move towards less invasive procedures designed to stave off visible signs of aging so for a long time it was believed you'd have to get a facelift you had to go under the knife But now we are seeing Botox 
and all kind of facial wrinkle fillers. They're all little injectables. You can go in literally on your lunch break and have a needle stuck in your face and feel younger, especially in Los Angeles. Botox and fillers are huge, and this has kind of become the new wave of do you need to go under the knife? Is it that serious? Or could we just plump you up a little bit with our needles? So that's been the new thing of the later, the later 2000 teens. What do you even call them? The 2010s? How do we refer to our I years nowadays? I actually asked that know. same question and I don't know. I know that the 2000 to 2010 the is the aughts, but like 2011 right. to now, but- no idea. I know. I'm like, now that we're in 2020, I feel like we need to have a reference to our past now of like 2011 to 2019. What do we say? The teens? I don't know. But in that time, Botox and filler became super popular and a lot of people are going to that instead of going under the knife. Well, and the good thing about Botox too is that it wears off. It does. So... It lasts for like four or five months. Yeah. And then if you want more, you go back in. And, and if you're like, that was yeah. fun. <laughs> Right. You might be like, that was nice for a time, but I'm all done now. (laughs) And that's fine. You didn't have to surgically alter your face. It's not so permanent. So I'm actually excited about it. I could absolutely see myself getting Botox one day. Sorry about it. But I have some bad crow's feet by my eyes, so I wouldn't hate it. But anyway, a lot of plastic surgeons today actually have a huge ethical debate on the growth of reality TV and showcasing how much plastic surgery is done in the world and showing every bit of it. A lot of surgeons are like, should we be going that far? Should we be showing this much? And it really started with the show. I don't know if you ever watched this, Ashley. I was obsessed. Extreme Makeover. No. Oh, they eventually made Extreme Makeover Home Edition, which everybody loved because that guy, Ty Pennington, was like the hottie and he was the carpenter. But there was an Extreme Makeover people. Where they would go in and get liposuction tummy tucks and basically made to look like supermodels. And it was crazy. And it ended up getting canceled after a few years, even though it had amazing ratings. But I think it got canceled because doctors started to complain and say, I don't know if we should be showing this much. And I don't know that we're teaching good values. So it actually got taken off the air only to be replaced by like every other reality show under the sun. But some doctors are the total opposite. And there will be surgeons who say... I like that we're educating the public about the potential risks and rewards of plastic surgery because nobody has ever had this intense of an inside look before. And we're now showing you what it's like on the table, what your recovery is like, because it was showing these people battered and bruised after their surgeries and taking six to eight weeks to recover and see the results they wanted. So it was like, yeah, we kind of do want to educate you. And also this helped make the stigma that was once attached to plastic surgery fall away, which... I actually really like because I was 100% one of those people who judged plastic surgery and thought it was only Beverly Hills blonde bimbos that got it. And now I feel like I have more of an appreciation for it and even like wouldn't be against it myself. So there's pros and cons to the TV shows. But basically, plastic surgery is in our faces today. It's everywhere. There are good and bad sides, of course, and we're going to jump into the psychology later, so I'm not going to go too much into that. But I think something that is really cool is there are a lot of surgeons out there who, most commonly in children, if they have a birth defect or something that is really affecting their health or something that's just going to heavily weigh on them mentally the rest of their lives, a lot of surgeons will perform 
a life-saving surgery pro bono because they just want to help people. And specifically with cleft lips and cleft palates, there's a great organization called Operation Smile that you can donate to at any time. They Any funds raised for them is put towards giving kids the surgery. It's amazing. It's awesome. And there's a lot of plastic surgeons who are doing good for the world, and they're not just working on housewives in Beverly Hills. So the stigma has to officially go away. There are really good sides. Well, and the thing is, is like those housewives that are getting the Botox and getting the lipo and getting the breast implants are the ones that are essentially paying for those pro bono surgeries. 100%. That they are, can't They're giving do. the money to make that happen. Yeah. yeah. So thank you, housewives. Yeah, so do your thing. I don't care. We needed you. <laughs> Yeah. And that's that. That's the history of plastic surgery and where we are now. Yeah, I had no idea it went back that far. I mean, because I was talking to you earlier, and and like we said, like, even before there was actual surgery, there were things like um, body binders and, and, you know, corsets that literally would shape your body and, and... almost bend you your bones yeah to be a different shape and you know in china the women would bind their feet to have smaller yep. feet you know so it, it's always been there it's just it's always as, been around especially with yeah women. as we got you know advancements it started to advance as well because everything advanced yeah 100 percent. well now we're gonna move on we're gonna go into like forms of body modification as far as like I go with like tattoos and piercings, I've covered a lot of them. A piercing and tattoos are, are the most common. You can pretty much get those anywhere you like. But then there's some other stuff. There's subdermal piercings, which means like you can get your cheek or your neck pierced or your chest or your arm. Like it can just it's like oh the neck makes yeah me hurt. <laughs> yeah. There are some where I'm like mm, ha <laughs> I don't like that. I know um, <laughs> it's a lot. You know like there's there's um. Piercing stretching, which is just like the gauges, which it mostly happens with ears, right. but I've seen it done elsewhere. I've seen it in lips and noses, you know, lip plates, I think they're called. Oh, yeah. Those are very large. Those. those are tribal mostly, but we've seen them reemerge in, into our culture. Then there's subdermal implants. And this is where you see people with like horns on their heads. Oh, goodness. Yes. Yeah. I've seen a couple of Which those. like, fine. Not something that I to would do. their own. But you can also, with this, you can get a Braille tattoo using subdermal implants. So I thought that was really cool. cool. Yeah. I love that. But this procedure is more on par with plastic surgery than piercings because you do have to actually open up the skin. Ah, gotcha. There's also eye tattooing, (laughs) which is a lot to handle. And the way they do this is they inject pigment into the sclera, which... No. Here's the thing, though. I found out doing my research actually does have some health benefits for some people. So, for example, um, corneal tattoos can reduce a glare within the eye due to iris loss or coloboma. So, you know, when you see people whose irises have, like, melted, sort of? Uh Uh-huh. They can have a glare and it can cause, like, horrible vision and sometimes vision loss. But if you get these corneal tattoos, it can, like, reduce that glare and you can actually see better. Or see again wow. if you've completely lost it. Right. So I thought that well, was that's cool. cool. Uh, you can yeah. also get eye piercings, but I won't even look that up. I, I wouldn't even look it up. I don't want to talk about that anymore. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. I want to cry that that exists. I don't know who would do that. I struggle enough putting a contact into my eye, so. Yeah. 
Nope. So, um, but it's a thing. And if you want to look it up, be my guest. Don't send me any pictures. Um, now this is <laughs> going to get a little gross for a second for some people. So bear with me. There's also tongue splitting where what? you can split your tongue down the middle and basically have two tongues. And you Those can either have just want to look like a snake. Kind of. Yeah. You can have a small fork like a snake or basically you can split it almost all the way and have almost two tongues because you can control both sides separately. Oh, no. Yeah. And do not look up a video if that makes you queasy because I did. I won't. I looked up a lot. Oh, Ashley. No. So I actually wanted to go over this. And again, this is going to get a little gross. So skip ahead a minute if you don't want to hear about this. But I thought it was really cool and interesting. And maybe there's someone out there who also does. But I never knew how they did this, how they split the tongues. And every time I saw one, I was like, how? So... I'm going to tell you how they do it. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. I think I'm ready. So there are three different ways. You can get it split with a scalpel. You can cauterize it or you can tie it off. And basically it starts, you have to, you don't have to, but a lot of people will make you because it just helps. You have to have a tongue piercing first. Yeah. Okay. And the reason for that is that when it heals, it's going to heal from that tongue piercing forward. And it, the tongue piercing sort of, you know, it's already there. It already heals. It makes sure that you don't end up having a split that's longer than you wanted. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. So it's sort of like a point where it's like, this is where my split's going to start. Uh-huh. So the scalpel method, basically the tongue is cut down the middle with a scalpel. And each side is stitched along the edge, which prevents the sides from healing back to, into each other. Cauterizing. So cauterizing is when you burn the tongue in half. And what that does is it, it, it closes off the blood vessels, which prevents bleeding immediately. Okay. And um, again, you need the tongue piercing so it doesn't, um, the whole thing doesn't crash and burn. And then there's the tie-off method. And this is done by, this is a DIY. You could do this yourself. if But you have to have, again, you have to have a tongue piercing. So <clears throat> basically what they do is you take fishing line and you tie it through an existing tongue piercing towards the front to the tip of the tongue and you mm -hmm. tighten it. And then once you keep that in and the line eventually becomes a little bit looser from gradually piercing through the tissue and then once that happens once it gets a little looser you cut out that line you insert another one a tighter fishing line and then this process allows the tongue to heal as it's being split so you don't need stitches or cauterization to control the bleeding but essentially you slowly split it yourself like eventually you're going to have a big hole in the middle of your tongue and then it's going to move forward <laughs> cool, cool so bro <laughs> Apparently, it could take anywhere from a few days to a few months, depending on the individual's no. pain, 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 pain tolerance. Pain tolerance. <sighs> Ashley. Yeah. I'm upset. <laughs> but FYI. I'm I don't. I'm not yeah. well. Tongues. Yeah. It's such a strong muscle. I just can't it's imagine. It's so strong. I Oof. can't imagine. Um cutting it or piercing it or anything i don't even like it when i kind of bite it 
<laughs> I'm that's painful. I'm poking I'm poking Ryan right now with my fingers because I anytime somebody talks about an area of the body that's making me squeamish, I like have to touch mine immediately <laughs> to be like, is to, like, it make there? sure I'm okay. Yeah, like is my tongue okay? Is it splitting in half? I'm so upset. Well, just an FYI wow. for people who are considering this, much like tattoo removal, it's apparently much more painful to undo a tongue split than to have it done. Oh, gosh. So really think about it, guys. Yeah. So if you want it, like, please give it some thought. You better want it real bad. There's also ear shaping, which is uh, usually when people shape their ears to be pointed like an elf's or Spock. Love it. And they used to do it as a form of binding, but the shapes could be, like, really wonky. So literally now they cut off pieces of your ear and sew them back up. Great. Cool. There is neck stretching, which is is mostly a tribal thing. It's done um, in the Burmese Cayenne tribe, and this is where they continuously add brass coils to their neck, elongating it like a giraffe. And contrary to popular belief, this practice is actually medically safe. There's kind of an urban legend that if these women, it's it's mostly women, if they take the coils off, their heads will just like flop and like their necks will break. It's not true. Like it's it's actually a pretty safe thing. To stretch your neck like a giraffe mm-hmm. is just totally fine. Yeah. We, our bodies are truly amazing. I cannot fathom. Okay. There's also teeth modification, which includes tooth sharpening, which I talked about in a bonus episode on our Patreon. Um, and there's also something called yaiba, which is super fascinating in Japan. And this is where they purposefully make their teeth crooked. It's like the opposite of braces. Whoa, um, what? Yeah, specifically women and specifically attempting to give themselves what we would refer to, like what we would see and we would refer to as snaggletooth um, on oh. both sides. They're canines, basically. They want their canines to protrude. And uh, the reason for this is apparently it's extremely attractive to Japanese men. What? For Tap snaggle teeth? It, well, it's kind of gross. It's for a gross reason. It makes women oh, look no. like children. Uh, it <laughs> looks like their teeth are just growing in. Uh, so that's well, the worst. <laughs> I hate that. I'm very upset. So these young women, usually like very young, like 19, 20, even younger sometimes, will either have... A procedure done that's like opposite braces where they literally make their teeth crooked or a lot of the times they just it's like a cap. They'll they'll cap the canines to just like make them protrude. And that's something that could be reversed eventually right. if you needed so it. So it's to not be. too crazy, but mm-hmm. wow. So that's nuts. And then I also learned, this is my last thing, that there are magnetic implants. And this is where a small but very strong magnet is inserted under the skin. It's almost always in the tips of the fingers. Now, obviously, these magnets can pick up metal objects like bottle caps and paper clips. So it's it's sort of like a fun parlor trick, you know. But the main purpose of getting an implant is to gain a sensory perception to magnetic fields. Because after the magnet is implanted under the skin nerves will grow around the magnet as it heals 
And then the magnet will push against magnetic fields mm-hmm. produced by electronic devices or, or whatever in the surrounding area, which then pushes against the nerves and basically gives you a sixth sense of magnetic vision. Whoa. Because like I said, nerves grow around it. So it's not even just that right. they feel it in their fingers. It's like in their body, they'll feel magnetic fields. So the whole fields. body can feel it. Mm-hmm. You basically become a superhero. A kind of. Bit. And that's kind of that's the purpose. That's really cool. I like that. I kind of want to do it. <laughs> it's also kind of annoying, though. You can't get an MRI or an X-ray. Like, you just can't. Oh. So hopefully nothing nope. serious happens. Nope. Good point. I wouldn't risk it because I have a vision in my life that something horrible is going to happen to me and I'm going to need an MRI. So we're done. <laughs> but also, like, you can't hold a hotel key with the wrong hand because you'll get ah! locked out of your room. I'm you sorry know, to there's laugh. There's, like, but some, like, random funny. things. It's like, this is kind of annoying. Also, I feel like it could deactivate your credit card too. Exactly. Like that magnetic strip. So it's like, haha, isn't that funny? Until you have to do it three times. And it's like, it's not funny anymore. I'm done. Um, yeah. It's also only going to last about four to five years because magnets weaken over time. And mm. you can't get a new one in the same place as the last one because of the scar tissue. Um, and it okay. won't, the nerves won't heal around it. So eventually you're going to run out of fingers to magnetize. Right. <laughs> you just run out of choices. And this is actually a form of what is known as body hacking or biohacking, which is a part of the biopunk movement. And people who are known as grinders are basically improving their own bodies with cybernetic devices, which can be as simple as focusing on how the food you eat interacts with your genes to implanting magnets and potentially computer chips into your body. Which is another form of uh, basically future body modification. Right. And right now it's kind of DIY. Like people will do it. Like some tattoo shops will do the magnetic implants in your fingers and stuff. Um, Yeah. But it's also people are doing it sort of like themselves. Yeah. So we haven't had a lot of advancements in biohacking, but we will. It's common. Yeah, we 100% will. It's on the way. It's in route. Oh, that's wild. So, yeah. So, and there's a ton of other things, but those were sort of the ones that stood out to me as important. Yeah. Those are very important. I'm going to be upset for the rest of my life about the tongue splitting, but I do think. No, but it was, this is good knowledge to put out there. I'm sure there's people who want to know. I, I mean, honestly, I didn't know any of that, but I do have the willies. I got some chills <laughs> running through my body. Yeah, that was just one of those things. That I was like, you know what? I'm actually going to read about this because I've always wondered how it happens and I don't know. And Same. I assumed you just cut it open, which is an option. But, you know, where do you go from there? Because that right, seems then what happens. painful and dangerous. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, ma'am. Anyways. Oh, boy. So I'll make it quick with plastic surgery, which I know we're going like way over time anyway, so I'm keeping it very simple and quick. I just wanted to read uh, from an article that I found that named the most popular types of plastic surgery around the world, because I think most of us know at this point the different surgeries that you can do to your body. And honestly, at this point in 2020, you can pretty much do anything. I'm not even kidding. Like you can go in and say, I want to look like a troll and live under a bridge and they'll be like i got you and they'll do whatever you say or one of the troll dolls they can probably put a gem in your belly button and (laughs) expand your face it's fine but the most popular ones around the world i bet we can all guess what number one is breast augmentation either direction 
Yes. Augmentation or reduction. They're both very popular. Um, and there are silicone for a very long time is the only kind of implant, but now they do saline water breast implants, which is supposed to make the boob feel a lot more natural, not as plasticky and fake. You can like kind of grab it in your hand and squish it around the way you would to a normal boob. So a lot of people are doing that more often. Um, and a lot of people just get a lift nowadays too. They work with what they have already, but bring them up to their original perkiness. So breast augmentation, number one, Can't you also no doubt. get like, you know, your ass meat put into your boobs? Like yes, that. I actually learned that on the show that I'm watching. It's called Skin Decision. It's on Netflix. Oh. It's like oh, number I five. That's the name of the show. I thought that was the name of the procedure. I was like, ah, oh. no. Skin it's decision. called the skin decision. You decide no, that's the name of the go. show. Okay. <laughs> it's like number five on Netflix right now, so it'll probably pop up on all of your suggested pages if you want to watch it. But that's the show I'm fascinated by right now. But they talked about that, how you can use fat pockets from other parts of your body and insert them in there as well so that it's completely you, completely natural, gives a natural feel. And usually they do a lift with that too. Because if you're just inserting the fat, they're just going to droop right. again. So you do a lift and the fat insertion. So yes. Um, and then nose reshaping or rhinoplasty is number two. Nose jobs, very popular, always have been. It's still the one that I'm considering, but will probably never get because my husband won't let me, but it's on my mind. Then eyelid surgery Whoa. is very happen very happening with older women right now because they get saggy eyelids that mm. actually get so saggy from their wrinkles that it pushes their eye down and they have to really put an effort in to keep their eyes open during the day, which really sucks. So... When I first read it, I was like, eyelid surgery? Who would do that? But after hearing the reasoning, it totally makes sense. And they basically will just cut off the excess skin and kind of tuck up the rest and bring you back to your restored eyelid that you had in your early 20s and no more weight on your upper eyelid. So that's pretty great. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I was like, I, yeah, I get that. I would do it if my eyelid was sagging. And then liposuction, which is huge, which... Basically, it's what is in the title. They're suctioning out, sucking out fat from your body. They cut, you know, a small little hole usually in your stomach, or I think they can do it out of like the lower back as well, but just a small little sliver. They put a tube in there and they suck out the fat. And that is usually followed by a tummy tuck because even though they're sucking out the fat, you'll still have the excess skin. Yeah. So usually those go hand in hand. They'll suck out the fat, but then they'll also do some stitching together of your excess skin to give you a nice flat tummy. You will have some light scarring, but because, again, technology is so advanced today, nowadays they can make the scar so light, so skinny, so small that like people will barely know anything's happened. So those two things are huge. Um, also facelifts, even though there is Botox now, facelifts still haven't gone out of style. And it's so crazy. Like, literally, they will detach the skin from right under your ear. It's, like, exactly what you'd think it is, but I just can't believe it's real. It still sounds like a sci-fi movie. Like, they detach the skin from under your ear and just pin it back. They stretch it back and lift it, uh, yeah. face lift, back behind your ear. And they tuck it so that everything gets a little tighter, just a little stiffer, a little more looking like you're in your 30s instead of your 60s, and they will just tuck it right in, and I hate it, and I feel like someone's just removing my face, and I don't want <laughs> it, but that's a facelift. People love them. Then there's dermabrasion, which is basically like really intense skincare. Like you can go get a chemical peel or a really intense facial, but dermabrasion is something that you're put under for because they are peeling a full layer of skin 
off of you in order to then put on a bunch of, I mean, I don't even know what they're putting on, but a bunch of different moisturizers and chemicals and things to improve your skin. But it's basically like, oh, I don't like the texture of my skin or, oh, I have really intense acne or too many wrinkles, whatever it is. And they will, if you want, you can go under the knife and have a layer of skin removed and kind of start fresh with that new layer underneath on your face. So that is a surgical way to get the most intense facial of your life. And that is one of the most popular procedures. Then followed by non-surgical, which we discussed earlier, Botox and fillers, usually in the cheeks or lips. Um, For the filler, and Botox is usually on the forehead or by the eyes. Filler is a hyaluronic acid being injected into the face to help make the appearance of cheekbones. And in older people, they usually get it to help get rid of the sag on their face and just make the face look full and a little more upright again. Then Botox is a special type of protein that is injected into the face and that once it has time to settle and react to the chemicals within your face, it will cause a light paralysis of the muscles or nerves in the area of injection, which allows people to smile and express themselves without getting all the wrinkles and lines, your natural aging facial lines that are supposed to happen when you smile, will not. And you will just look like a Barbie smiling at people. And that's Botox. And those are the most popular things happening across the world. And also there's, um, have you seen, do you know what air sculpting is? I've heard about it where you can basically get like ab lines from a machine. Well, air sculpting is actually, it's liposuction essentially, but it's liposuction where you don't get cut open at all and you're on your, you can go to work like two days later. And it's um, essentially what they do. And there's not even any injections, apparently. Yeah, the way they numb your skin is that um, it's pressed. The the numbing is pressed into your pores with force. So no injections or anything. And then what happens is once that's done, they make little holes um, in your body, which are, are like the tip of a sharpened pencil, that size. And then... It gets the fat cells get sucked out of the area. Wow. And they literally are sucking out the cells. So the fat also doesn't, you know, basically everyone's body has fat cells already in it in certain areas. Right. Which is why yeah. some people gain weight around their stomach and some people like me, I gain it around my thighs and my ass. That's where my fat cells mm-hmm. are. And some people gain weight in their face and some and that's why a lot of women when they gain weight, like their boobs are the last thing. Right. <laughs> Which is like, thanks, guys. Thanks, God. I know. It's like, this is what we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, when you're done, they give you, you know, pads to soak up because you're going to have like leakage, which Some is bleeding. gross. Not necessarily bleeding, but like the, f- the there's going to There's just fluid coming gross, out. Yeah, stuff coming out. Ugh. So you have these pads right. and then they give you like a scuba suit, essentially, that you're <sighs> supposed to wear for like a couple days. Obviously, you take it off to like Dang. change your bandages or whatever. And like literally like you're sore. You're not like you can- you're not feeling great, but you're fine. Yeah. But you're not recovering from a major surgery, which is so different. I, okay, I hadn't heard of that then because that's so different. I keep getting targeted ads on Instagram, which I think is hilarious because I watch so much plastic surgery (laughs) that my Instagram's like, this is for you. And there's a new thing (laughs) that is hitting LA called cool sculpting. And it's these machines that go all over your body and are supposed to like give you the same effects of like working out for 45 minutes, but just through a machine, which 
you're not going to get the exact effects. Like nothing can do that unless you're actively like doing cardio and working your body. But it does help remove some of the fat cells, like the way the machine is rubbing into you and moving things around. Apparently, it's able to move the fat cells in a way that like it just distributes it a little better and it helps add some sculpting to your body. I think you are supposed to work out alongside of it to get the best effects. So you're getting like your natural muscles, but also this is just helping to like bring things together. But you can just go sit in Beverly Hills and have a machine work on your thighs and your abs and you can feel a little more toned when you leave. And I, of course, clicked on it because I was like, sweet, I don't have to do my workout tomorrow. (laughs) And it's like, a hundred thousand dollars. I clicked on air sculpting, so I was like, "This can't be." I read an article on it first of a, you know, it was like a Marie Claire Huff Post or I don't know who it was, but um, Variety. I don't know, but it was a girl who basically for her magazine got to have it done and then write about what a it. Bitch, to like, so yeah. And uh, and <laughs> she was talking about her experience. She was like, "Seriously, I have told everyone about it. I show my before and after pictures. Like, it's I want more of it done. Like, I can't believe Dang. it." And it was like, "Oh my gosh!" So I like looked it up. I was like, "How much does it cost?" And it was like per area, it's about ten to twenty thousand dollars. And I was like, mm-hmm. "Oh." So chump change, we can afford sure, it. Sure, yeah, no problem. Let me just get in Jeez. my bank account. I haven't worked since March. <laughs> right. No, I can't the afford no it. Turns money out I can't afford that it. I have. <laughs> Yikes. That so. is wild. Well, that is all the time we have this week for Keep It Weird. Thank you so much for listening to our show and following us on social media at Keep It Weirdcast across all platforms. Make sure you join us next week where we will be covering mm. the psychology behind body modification as well as cases in which people have taken it too far or gone to the extreme. 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 Yeah. Other than following us on social media, you can also support the show by heading over to www.patreon.com slash podcast and donate $1, $5, or $10 to the show. And in return, you'll get cool stuff like newsletters and bonus episodes and discounts on merch. You can also invite your friends to join our Facebook group or to like our Facebook page. You can rent a plane to do some sky riding. You can buy one of our shirts. (laughs) That's what we prefer. We do prefer the sky riding. Uh, But if you can't afford that, you can buy one of our shirts or tank tops at www.etsy.com slash shop slash keep it weird podcast. You can also make friends with a famous person and get them into the show so that they share it with their famous friends. Uh, You can hire a mime. Anyway, so thank you for listening. (laughs) Please hire a mime. We'll see you next week. And we should just come up with a generic sign-off so we don't have to torture ourselves every week. Like, why do we do this? I don't know why we didn't discuss this before. Didn't we learn last time? Uh, Beers, Botox, and burgers. Oh, my just just I thought it was going further than that but that's fine it was going to and then I got (laughs) stuck and I took a drink of my wine (laughs) um I decided to sip instead how about love your body for what it is but if you want to change it do whatever the fuck you want it's your body it's your life your body your life do what you want with it keep it weird keep it weird Sorry. Let her rip. That was my uh, So Cali dog from <laughs> Doghouse. Yes, Doghouse.